This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. We will also explore threats to meaningful engagement in sport and movement culture practices and ask questions about what we can learn about the human condition through our involvement in sport. The guests are leading scholars in human and social sciences of sport who will share their explorations in a scholarly as well as a personal context. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. In today's episode, we will start exploring the connections between culture and meaning. We cannot create meaning out of nowhere, but we always depend on culture to provide us with a horizon of significance. But what kind of thing is culture, then? Can we create a winning culture, a healthy culture, or a meaningful culture around sport? Or are any attempts to manage culture and manage meaning simply colonialist projects that will inevitably marginalize and silence certain people's meanings? I'm delighted to introduce today's guest. He has completed his PhD focused on a critical examination of organizational culture research in sport at Liverpool John Moores University and teaches psychology at Keystone College in the US. He is conducting research on various topics, including cultures in sport and organizational contexts, meaningful work, craftsmanship and well-being. And while his work is certainly critical and thought-provoking, He also engages in consultation work and puts his thinking into practice in organizational contexts. Welcome, Dr. Michael McDougall, and thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me to be a part of this really great podcast. And so for our talk today, what this talk can really bring to the podcast is kind of think about the cultural influence and and the role of culture in how people find meaning in sport or maybe they don't find meaning in sport. In your doctoral research you have asked some really good questions about what is the relationship between culture and meaning, how can we conceptualize culture and, and what are the implications of those conceptualizations also in terms of how sports psychologists work with athletes, how they work with teams and how they work with sport organizations. So I think a really nice way of starting our discussion would be to start talking about the concept of culture and talk about organizational cultures in sport. Sure. Um, so, so in some ways that seems like quite a, a straightforward question, but as we know from our, our discussions, culture is a very contested concept, um, not just in organization and in management and in sport where we do a lot of our research, 
but in other disciplines like anthropology, literature, history, uh, philosophy, um, cultural studies, all these places, uh, sociology, have really debated and batted around for decades what culture is. And certainly just because two researchers use the word doesn't really mean we're talking about the same thing. So typically I find that when people use the word culture or the term organisational culture in sport, what they really mean is um, a set of shared consensus, fairly uniform and homogenised values, uh, beliefs, customs, practices, rituals, or yada, yada, yada. Uh, but the idea is that it's it's um, this thing that the group shares that uh, somehow shapes their destiny. In sport, that typically means fusing that understanding with functions and outcomes that organisations and leaders and also athletes want to achieve. So uh, improved operational excellence. Uh, performance on the field. So that idea of culture is really equated with social cohesion on the one hand, with effectiveness on the other. Um, now, that isn't to say that's how I conceptualise it, because there's, there's a real split between researchers who think of culture in that way as if it's a thing in the environment, um, almost like it's a variable which you can isolate and separate from other variables and mechanically manipulate to achieve outcomes. There's a, a reconceptualization of culture uh, which happens in anthropology uh, really around the 60s with Clifford Geertz where we say that culture isn't about these regulated normative behaviours and values which drive the group. It's, it's really about the underlying meanings. So what is underneath uh, everything that goes on and how are locals thinking about the world and how are they constructing it. So that shift to think about meanings is a radical change in the, the study of culture, which moves us away from thinking of culture as a thing, uh, which a group possesses within certain boundaries and is analytically distinct from other ideas such as, I don't know, like leadership, behaviour or strategy. Uh, to something that weaves through social interaction and is essentially everywhere and demands to be interpreted. So, so that's that's how I would sort of um, characterize culture. Is really about uh, the meanings that underlie all the stuff that goes on uh, in the worlds that we live in. And I think we are now starting to kind of get to the idea that meaning or meanings as 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 you mentioned, is is not really an individual thing and something that is going going on in a person's head, but it's something that is a cultural thing and and something that that we all share these meanings, or at least we recognize those meanings in in a cultural environment that we share with others. Absolutely. So uh, culture is uh, by its very nature uh, a collective phenomenon because it's. It's, uh, it's shared, it's understood, and it's made sense of uh, collectively as a group, which isn't to say that we can't still contribute to it individually or experience it in individually nuanced ways. Um, so, so sometimes what I guess what we can do is we go a little bit far with taking 
uh, the idea of shared meanings, which is to mean that culture is a, a group and collective phenomenon that we all somehow understand and use to make sense of our worlds, to mean that um, everything is understood in ways which are absolutely identical or uniform. Uh, so we can still have shared meanings which guide us, but people interpret it in different ways for a variety of reasons, um, identity, their past history, uh, the life that they've lived uh, in organisations, maybe because they are at a different level of the organisation or a different facet of the organisation, and maybe they have a different role, maybe they belong to a different uh, subculture within the larger culture, uh, maybe they just have different personal values, and all of those things can shape their interpretation of the meanings that people share and negotiate. Hmm. We've previously had, and when we worked together, we had several critical discussions about the elite sport cultures and the elite sport organizations and and some of the meanings that are promoted and promoted by the leadership and, and the types of meanings that are kind of brought forth by the key people like the coaches who are socializing the young athletes to the sport. So... Um, I don't know how much we want to talk about the problems of elite sport, but uh, maybe we can spend a little time kind of exploring what is the hegemonic uh, kind of cultural um, environment and what kind of meanings are being promoted. Yeah, well, well certainly when we speak about culture, um, what people are usually speaking about is uh, culture to enable uh, better performance. So it's that sort of functional utility of culture again so we can if we can engineer a set of consensus values and use a, a range of tactics to spread those values out we can somehow at the end sort of concretize that in a set of behaviors and actions which will make uh, performance better now that's really intuitive and i understand the link and why it's so appealing you know, it's everybody in sport wants to perform better, and this really replicates the the way that culture has been used in organisations. You know, so in organisation management, and managers want to be able to wield culture as a tool to make their companies better, to make their workers more productive, to make things more efficient. So, those are the the type of meanings that are sort of attached to culture in elite sport. Um, now, there's, there's critiques of that which we can obviously get into, but I think one of the things that are lost when we speak about culture in this way is that, you know, maybe you can see as, as, as we speak about this that um, culture has been fashioned into somewhat of a, a blunt instrument to get an outcome, i.e. performance. But the original value of culture as the anthropologist intended. And it was really anthropologists who, in a lot of ways, fashioned the concept of culture into the modern concept that we sort of understand and can all talk about. The, the original intent was to sensitize us to difference and to enable understanding of that difference, and then to work out what we might have in common, and then beyond that to help us have conversations uh, across cultural lines. Now, that sort of broadens the application of culture significantly because it means that it doesn't just have to be a, a performative endeavour. It can be something that enables deeper understanding 
across a range of issues and areas. And I think uh, for me, that is uh, one of the challenges to the, the the dominant perspective of culture and sport that in trying to make it all about performance, where we have this instrumental performative view about the concept of culture, we're actually limiting its utility and what we can do with it. Th- does that make a little bit of sense? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And and you also mentioned that there are these critiques about kind of the ideas as culture as the glue that keeps the group together or culture as yeah. a set of shared meanings. So let's delve into the critiques a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So so this is a, it seems to be that this idea that culture is shared, which which I agree with, um, has been taken to mean, as I said earlier, uh, consensus, uniformity. There is there is a singular monolithic culture that looks the same no matter the angle. Uh, that seems to be the intellectual default position, uh, not just in sport, but also in organisation and management. That, that really sort of started happening in the 80s when culture burst onto the organisational consultant scene and ideas of corporate culture. But in academia, um, you know, that idea has been critiqued for decades and decades from a, a number of angles and a, from a number, number of scholars. So it's theoretically, there's there's a, a lot of issues with it. Um, fundamentally, how can everyone with all their varying differences and social inequalities, how can we all look at something in exactly the same way? Um, how can we look at something as complex as meaning? So meaning that groups attached to understand the world how can we really believe that everybody sees that in exactly the same way so there's there's scholars like joanne martin who is a organizational scholar in the 80s called this a seductive uh, promise which really sort of fetishizes uh, homogeneity but is empirically unmerited and is unlikely to ever be fulfilled and margaret archer you know, challenge this myth of integration as one of the the deep-seated fallacies of all, all of, like, social science. Really, it's one of, like, the most deep-rooted myths and fallacies in all of social science. You know, so what we can say is that this, this idea of culture as a, a system which is completely integrated and cohesive is is really challengeable on like ontological, epistemological, and empirical grounds, and and that's been done across anthropology, sociology, organisational management, critical scholarship, and a little bit in sports psychology. So, what a lot of these scholars are really saying is that it represents a theori- theoretical and methodological. A restriction of the concept because it really only includes or privileges uh, what is shared and consistently understood. Um, now, so it almost creates a tautology, right? If we define culture in terms of what is shared and we define it and conceptualize it through that, it tends to skew our analysis. So when we're on the ground trying to make sense of culture, we look for what is uh, conveniently and easily understood and what is is obviously shared. Now that's fine, but it tends to orientate us towards the less remarkable aspects of culture. So we can very quickly arrive at a, a place where we say, well, this is how things are around here. But actually, if you peel a little bit deeper, 
there's always usually some sort of variation in those interpretations. So there's there's ruptures of meanings. There's discontent um, with uh, the dominant stories or understandings that people say is the culture. So when people say to me, culture is uh, how things are around here, I'm always internally asking, well, according to whom? Because usually... Uh, what people are really saying when they say this is culture as it is around here, it tends to be a leadership or top-down sort of view. Uh, so this is what leaders say it is. Now, in my experience, both research and practice, there's always a gap between what leaders and people at the top say culture is and what it actually is in reality. Uh, and that's because culture is a people concept and not just a leadership concept. So there's always things happening outside of the leadership sphere of cultural awareness that they're not really fully aware of. Um, so when we say that uh, culture is what is uniform and is about consensus and what is clearly understood and shared, what we really tend to be doing is sometimes discounting, discrediting what is not shared as is uh, and calling it not cultural or somehow of less cultural cultural importance, which if you run far enough with that, sort of marginalizes other worldviews, different value systems, and even people's own uh, identities. I mean, right away when you started talking about shared meanings and, and, and shared values, and that's the only thing that counts when we talk about culture. So just like you said, the certain other worldviews will be then silenced. And, and marginalized. And I think some of the work that has been done in cultural sports psychology, like Rob Schinke and Amy Blodgett, and when they have looked at Aboriginal athletes, and, and many of them have like religious or spiritual worldview, and when they have been migrating to do sport in a mainstream sport environment, they often learn that uh, kind of expressing your spirituality or or your religion is not something that is accepted around here. So either you have to be kind of not doing your maybe praying is part of your performance routines or it's it's something that you do also in the sports arena, but you quickly learn that that is not the way we do things around here. So so either you risk being marginalized or then you actually stop doing your your spiritual practices yeah and, and that can be and that can be i mean we know how damaging that can be and certainly with some of the debates around sport and performing and well-being just now how quickly that can sort of happen um i, I think what we're sort of speaking about is just you know people are cultural beings so you know if i go into an organization and someone tells me this is for all intents and purposes this is how it is and this is what you've got to do to fit in. And there's all sorts of attempts to socialize me through various management tactics, which are really about increasing compliance and reducing resistance. Um, well, you know, I, I might not accept that um, because I come with all this stuff which makes me me. Um, now, there's different ways I might not accept that. Um, I might, you know, feel really diminished and shrink into a corner and keep quiet. And I feel that my own cultural understandings and interpretations have been downplayed and dismissed. But I can also comply outwardly and be inwardly ambivalent 
or reject these sort of shared dominant meanings. And there's there's a really nice uh, piece of work by uh, an organisational scholar and ethnographer, Gideon Kunda, um, and he studied in the 90s the, the tech companies in Silicon Valley. And, you know, one of the things he found that is that we have these sort of ideas of strong cultures which are top down and imposed and that everyone is supposed to clearly understand and get on board with. But actually what he found was that people were inwardly ambivalent, you know, and, and that can happen a lot. And again, this takes us back to the idea that culture is something, if we're serious about it, demands interpretation. And really that involves unpeeling layers of meaning. So the understandings underneath the understandings underneath the understandings. And what you're sort of getting at is agentic, vulnerable and powerful actors uh, within local contexts trying to understand their worlds and themselves within that. So immediately that sounds pretty complex. Um, and that's definitely a critique of this notion of culture as singular and shared and something that integrates people as glue is that actually it's quite a simplified view of social life, which doesn't really capture the complexity of day-to-day -day cultural life as experienced by coaches, managers and athletes. From your example in, in our organizational context, I think in the sport context, we some of the work that comes to my mind is Martin Roderick's work on, on professional footballers and how some of them kind of disidentify from their profession. So they are doing their job, but they don't actually buy in to the culture. And and the other would be uh, Katrina Douglas and David Carlos with their work on narratives, how how some athletes would would be kind of living the part of the athlete. So you are buying into or or kind of... Uh, living the culture, whereas others would be just playing the part of the athlete, which means that you are kind of ex doing what is expected of you, but you don't actually believe the narrative or you don't believe in the culture that, that is built around your sport. Yeah, I, th I think absolutely. And I've seen that in practice quite a lot, where uh, upper level people believe that they have a clear hold on what they think the culture is. And then they try and sort of roll it out and get people to buy into it and do certain things. And then they're sort of surprised where somewhere down the line uh, things come unstuck a little bit. And often it's because they probably didn't really understand the culture in any real meaningful way uh, as it pertains to people who are outside of the dominant narrative. Um, and I, I'm always surprised by how surprised managers and leaders are by that. When I, I think if you understand cultural in the way we are talking, it seems inevitable that there's going to be these ruptures. So if you can add a different heuristic right at the start of your analysis or how you conceptualize it, that actually culture isn't just what is clearly shared, it can also be what is contested and different, and it can also be what is ambiguous and not clearly understood. And actually that this is, all of this is not static, but changing, um, because meanings are rarely ever completely fixed, so culture is always fluid, at least partly, um, I, I think you're always prepared to uh, deal with culture uh, a little bit better, as opposed to thinking it's this thing that just everybody sees the same way you do. So so in sum, it's just really clear to me that if sport uh, psychologists, coaches, 
um, leaders, performance directors are going to make fuller use of the, the concept. You can't restrict it only to this shared concept. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. And we are kind of jumping in and out with the with the idea about narratives, shared narratives. And so um, I mentioned some of the narrative research and, and that's a methodology and, and that's kind of a lens that you have also used and, and we have used together in, in our work. So using narrative inquiry and, and narrative analysis to make, make sense of what people tell us. So maybe you can talk a bit about the link between culture, meaning and narrative. If we think of culture as um, meanings, which are not completely shared in the sense that they are uniform, singular and completely static. So not an external force or entity. It, then it can't really be studied through the gathering of objective facts because I think what you're getting into is more cultural, symbolic phenomenon which people interpret and ascribe meaning to in the flow of social life. So culture in this view is a way to think about and interpret and understand certain aspects of the social world. In terms of how story helps me with that is, from this perspective, people are storied beings and they can't really be separated from their cultures and their cultural influences. So, so this idea that culture is inevitably interwoven through the narratives that they create and draw on to understand themselves and the world that they are a part of. Um, so I think Carlos and Douglas said this, you know, that the, the stories individuals tell of their lives offer insights into the cultural settings in which they are immersed. So at least organisationally and in line with, you know, I've told you a little bit about how anthropologists have maybe used stories um, to to understand worlds which seem a little bit exotic and different, uh, storied approaches have long been conceived, although not in mainstream organisational research, as a way to explore organisational experience. And that was something I really bought into, this idea that uh, stories themselves have an ontological significance with organi organisations. They tell you something about how people uh, live their lives. So for me, because I'm telling you about this idea of culture, that it's uh, more complex and messier, infinitely messier than is typically portrayed, stories and narrative methods have enabled me to try and gather some of that rich contextual data, uh, which can inform some of my work. Um, and for me, that is um, what is really important about it is you can get at how people really and make meaning on a subjective level. So it gets you away from some of those privileged and dominant narratives that we sometimes hear in sport. So the idea that sport is all about performance or winning. Um, people are debating this just now, but it, that was a narrative that a lot of people have pushed for a long time. And I've certainly been told by a lot of people that if I didn't understand that sport was a high level sport, was essentially about winning at all costs, then I, I might not really be able to work in top-level sport. Um, so that's a dominant sort of narrative, which has been around in various guises for a number of years. Now, what story does is that it takes you away from sometimes the dominant narratives. So it allows you to uh, explore other ways that people see the world. Because I think a really important quality of story is that it... Um, 
they have an ability to reveal sort of the, the hidden aspects of culture, such as the other side of like rules and norms and values. And I've found that particularly valuable in cultural research because it doesn't automatically assume or privilege or enhance this understanding of culture as a, a unitarian, unifying force which really acts to integrate and control. Um, so that takes us into a territory, I think, where stories are able to show, yes, facts and events and vulnerable, powerful actors trying to make sense of their world underneath larger narratives, which might be political uh, or social within a local context and wider context. But uh, getting into how they really make sense of that complex, socio-cultural, political world uh, in an emotional sense, which can highlight themes of like frustration, injustice, uh, oppression and trauma which people encounter in their, their day-to-day lives as other stories are sort of imposed on them. Yeah. So, so for me, I guess to, I'm probably waffling a little bit, but maybe to sum it up, um, I think it's a way to really get to the nuance and complexity of sport organizational life. I think what you were saying about kind of if you want to be working in an elite sports setting, then you have to accept that winning is what these organizations exist for. So I think that tells a lot about the kind of the hegemony of that narrative that it's something that you cannot. Uh, question and and that's something that is inevitable and that's something that still comes through but I think nowadays when we are looking at the media and we are looking at all the scandals that are happening in in sport in the UK for example but also globally and and now there is a lot of attention to all these crises that the elite sport is experiencing partly because of this winning is everything narrative and we talk about bullying uh, abuse we talk about mental health issues in elite athletes so Mm -hmm. I think we are now seeing that this narrative is very harmful to a lot of people who are involved in sport yeah and and you know and that's I mean if I do think that if sport had paid a little bit more attention to how culture has been conceptualised in other areas, we might have been able to foreshadow some of this. Um, you, you know, if, if you look at... So we'll go back to anthropology again. Lots of what we know about the culture concept has came from, uh, has emerged from the colonial encounter. So countries like uh, Britain, France, Portugal, Spain, when they were colonising other countries... Uh, essentially what you've got is you've got people arriving in other lands and saying to people that, look, we have a, a vision of progress and civilization uh, which is better than yours. Now, all you locals, dot, 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 have got to get on bo- board or else, dot, dot, dot. And that's not a million miles away from how a lot of people have approached culture and sport. So, you know, when Britain wasn't winning... A lot in sport and they tried to implement systems which would help us to be more successful on the global sport stage there's a change in the narrative 
where sport is really about performance and people who perform well will be rewarded and get more money. And that's the narrative that's created. If you're willing to peer underneath that dominant narrative, which was pushed and fetishized a little bit, uh, you can maybe see what's actually going on underneath the surface. Not in all sport organisations, but certainly it appears in a lot of them, at least for some people, that there's different types of narratives and there's nar narratives where people are being damaged and have been subject to top-down coercive control. So, so we're sort of getting into the idea that, you know, sport has really used culture as if it is this concept which can only enable really positive outcomes. Now, culture isn't automatically, you know, a good or a bad concept, but I think if you're aware that it can actually be used um, not just to enable outcomes, but to also constrain people and control them. We could have maybe seen how culture can be used in quite damaging ways to really get people to buy into systems of thinking, which perhaps inevitably was always going to damage and marginalise some people who, or, or push some people who didn't quite share in those values and beliefs or wanted to see things in slightly different ways. Perhaps it was always inevitable that they were going to get pushed to the fringes a little bit. Um, yeah, so, so that, that's, that's, I guess that's one thing to think about, these ideas of dominant narratives. Now, I, we, we probably have to be careful. If you go so far the other way and we think, well, how do we protect people? Then you're sort of maybe just using culture as a means of control again. So it's not just enough to sort of change the narrative and say, well, we'll change the narrative and make sport really about performance and a serious consideration of well-being because you can have that in your head as, as your plan and what you're aiming for, but then you still use con culture in a way which is controlling and gets people to buy in to these shared understandings. Uh, and maybe as we do that, if we're not careful, we'll end up in a situation again where we haven't really understood that people interpret culture in varying ways. Um, so that, that's just something to be mindful of, I suppose. Yeah. So, I mean, there are so many of these complexities and even when you are trying to do a good thing, I, mm. I think pe many people, a lot of people in the sport are trying to do a good thing, but then all the narratives that are put out there, like if we look at them from different angles, they can always be suppressing some other narratives and, and marginalizing other views. Yeah. And so I, I think we end up in a really difficult situation. And then what is, I don't know, maybe you can just share your thoughts on what might be a little bit better ways of seeing culture as a concept from a research perspective and then maybe from... Uh, like a applied perspective as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I, th I think first of all, we have to be a little bit more humble around the concept because we've borrowed it from other disciplines and other areas which have a far longer history of scholarship and using culture in a multitude of ways. So we've only really borrowed... And I say we, I don't mean all of sport, because I know there's cultural sport psychology and people have looked at culture in slightly different ways. But certainly in terms of organisation and performance sport, we've really borrowed a, a narrow version of the concept uh, which is performative and instrumental and, uh, and tried to do things with it that we thought were practical and pragmatic and useful. So the first thing I think we need to do is be a little bit more humble and realise that culture is a concept which has existed for well over a century now. Um, in different areas as a modern concept and that means that it's got a lot of baggage that comes with it 
And if I'm honest, I think we have cherry-picked some of the nicer aspects of culture without realising that actually other disciplines have wrestled with some of the darker aspects of it, such as the ability to constrain people, such as the ability to control them through culture. Um, because that was another side to the anthropologists too, you know, it was anthropologists weren't just academics. Lots of them worked in colonial parts of the world where their insights uh, were used in policy. Uh, so culture, in a sense, has always been uh, linked to ideas of control over from one group who are elites over another group. So we have to be aware of some of that, and I don't think we can just keep cherry-picking what we want culture to be uh, without recognising that people have wrestled with some of the darker aspects. You know, so, so that would be a good starting point, is just being a little bit more humble and a little bit more careful around the concept itself. In terms of practice, um, well, I suppose just in terms of research and practice, broaden our lens of what culture is. If we get away from the idea that culture is completely shared in, and it can also be what is contested, and it can also be what is not clearly understood, I think that sensitises us to not just trying to bring everyone under the same umbrella, because it's actually very difficult to have a healthy, inclusive culture, whatever that might look at if your concept just fetishizes homogeneity of values. Because then what you do is anyone who doesn't automatically subscribe to that, you're pushing to the side. So we have to get away a little bit from this idea of culture as just this homogeneity, uh, homogenous integrating mechanism, uh, the social glue, which isn't to say we should abandon it at all because we have to have uh, consensus, otherwise we're not going to, we have to have a degree of consensus, sorry, otherwise we're not going to get very far at all, you know, we won't be able to do anything. But I think just adding uh, some of those different lenses and understandings to what we take as culture already could have uh, a massive difference. Now, in terms of practice, uh, again, I think we have to be a little bit more careful because what we tend to do, not just in sport, and a lot of my work is done and organisations actually outside of sport. But what people tend to do is that we think of culture as this thing that's going to get us X, Y and Z. And leaders are under all sorts of pressures uh, and they have to make decisions very quickly. And although they've got five-year plans and they want to do X, Y and Z, you know, the re reality is that the organisational and social worlds move quite quickly. So they want culture to be this thing that helps them to navigate the world and get them things and they have to be able to implement it in quite practical ways. Now, in my applied experiences, what that usually means is we spend far too much time thinking about the desired state. So what we want to be in, I don't know, X amount of time, uh, what behaviours do we want people to have? And we should probably spend a little bit more time thinking about where we are culturally, so what is the current cultural understanding across layers uh, of hierarchy and role and subculture um, and not just work out where we are but actually work out where we've came from because culture by virtue of what it is it's this thing that spans history um, so the so it spans the past the present and the future and in my experience if we can just spend a little bit more time working out where we are currently and also where we've came from in terms of understanding that gives you a much better analysis to be able to move forward um, and it's a little bit less reactionary and so, so that's a good practice. Um, 
Another good practice is just to recognise that culture isn't the domain of leaders. We tend to think it is because they're the people with the most influence. So typically culture is seen as something that is leader created, top down, um, rolled out through a bunch of tactics to socialise people to the desired uh, culture, whatever that may be. But actually, it's it's much healthier to realise that culture is a people concept and there's lots of things going on that leaders aren't probably aware of because culture is deep and it's embedded and it can be tacit and it can partly be a little bit unconscious and it's always shifting to some degree. So if we can become more inclusive uh, right in our conceptualization, it probably leads to more inclusive practices. One of the outcomes that we see through just having essentially top-down culture imposed it is that there's always resistance. Now in traditional change management spaces how that's dealt with is resistance is really just seen as a, a temporary blip on the road to uniformity or it's seen as evidence that uh, the culture change hasn't worked or that uh, the culture isn't strong. But in actual fact resistance itself is evidence of different cultural understandings because maybe resisting top-down change makes perfect sense for people on the ground who see the world in different ways. So we have to build in some of those ideas to how we think about culture. So if you think of resistance as not evidence that the culture hasn't worked or that the culture isn't strong enough yet, but in fact that there's layered understandings, that puts us in a, a vastly different position to be able to do culture change. Now, ethically, I don't know what's going to get done with that sometimes because I've worked with leaders where you can flesh out resistance and you can show different ways of understanding organisational life. Now, that can be useful to leaders, but it doesn't mean to say that they're going to handle that understanding and use it in ethical ways because they might just use that understanding to, to crush the resistance more effectively. But... If you're working with leaders who are trying to do the right thing, who are responsible, who are ethical, and I believe that lots of leaders are, um, they can use that to maybe consider whether the culture that they wanted or the change that they were trying to impose is actually the only way of going about it. And if they reflect on that, they might realise that maybe there's different ways of doing things which make better sense to everybody else. And if we can incorporate some of that, we might get less resistance and we might be a little bit more effective in what we're trying to do. So so those are just, you know, that's, that's a couple of ways. There's, there's, there's lots of ways we can uh, change our cultural practices. But fundamentally, for me, it involves going back to the concept and thinking about it in different ways, which will enable us to research it in different ways, which will enable different types of practices, which seems to me to be a lot more realistic than how we are currently trying to use it. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes. 
so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.